Hello and welcome to Automators, the automation podcast about automatically doing everything in an automated fashion. At least that's what your stuff should be doing for you. My name is Rose Riocha and I'm joined as always by David Sparks. Hey David, how are you? Hey, hey Rose. I'm a little dizzy from your introduction, but uh, I like it. Well, I mean, I've got a little bit of a cold, so I feel like anything that's weird about today's episode, we will blame solely on the cold. Uh, Nothing to do with me, you, or our fabulous guest, James Thompson. Hi, James. Hi. Thank you for having me on. I'm gradually ticking off all the relay shows. Um, Not that you're not that you're just something to be ticked off. No, no. But we're part of the bingo card, Um, and you know, and you know, you've done the triple J's on Connected, um, and all of the you know other fabulous stuff that you've been on. And we'll we'll get some links to some of the uh, other episodes that you've been on to put in our show notes. Um, but we thought we'd get you on automators and not talk about anything automation related because you don't do anything to do with that stuff, do you? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kidding, but I'm I'm. I mean, you're kidding, we- and yet also I'm thinking, do I do anything with automation? I mean. Just a tiny little excerpt um, from um, the show notes or something that I'm sure I sure saw in the show notes is that during the entire pandemic, you didn't use a light switch. You just used Siri to control your lights. This is true. Yes, we will get to that in a future topic. Yes, um, exactly. But, but yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I was I was thinking about this and I, I think I'm like, I'm the person behind the curtain that's making automation support more mm-hmm. than the person who is actually then using the thing he has built. That's that's often the case with developers that we have on the show that, you know, they have all this knowledge of automation and how to implement it. And we definitely want to talk to you about that because, you know, there's emerging story with shortcuts and third party integrations and all that. But a lot of developers don't have a lot of automations because they wake up every day and they open Xcode and then eventually they get a sandwich and then they open Xcode and then they go to bed. So they don't have as much automation as some of our listeners. I mean, there was one of the things that I I was looking into, and this is we're, we're skipping ahead, but anyway, I was looking at the shortcuts stuff that you can do with uh, HomeKit, yeah, and. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't made the connection when I had first heard about it that this stuff would run on your your HomeKit hub thing rather than on a phone or whatever. And I was looking at it and I spent, you know, a day or so messing around with things, trying to do stuff with lighting or whatever. And then I, I sort of paused and I was like, do I want to write code for my house? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, it is the case that for a lot of stuff, if I if I'm going to do something, I will reach for Xcode rather than you know um, shortcuts or Apple Script yeah. or whatever because I can I can build a thing. You know why why not spend weeks making a bespoke tool for doing something rather than like quickly trying to use some existing solution. Yeah. I mean that that that's one of the reasons why this show is so much fun because there are multiple solutions to all of the problems and all of us do our best to find a new and interesting way to solve it <laughs> instead of going the the pre-trodden everybody's been here before and this is how everybody does it so that's how we'll solve this problem uh solution and it 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 makes the show more interesting but it's also you know one of the reasons why you are you because um I, I can see in the notes um that you, you've been 
doing automation support in your applications for a while. Like Peacock 1.0 had support for Apple events um, in 1992. So that was like last year um, yeah. when Apple events was created, basically, um, you know, fudging decades a little bit there. Um, and that to me is pretty amazing that you've had, you've been adding automation support to all of these things for so long, because, you know, that's, that's why when you reach for things, you'll reach for the code to do the thing rather than something that you can sort of put together a little bit like Lego, but then you have all of the Lego mechanics around it, which you don't necessarily want. Yeah. When I, when I first did Peacock, like Apple events were a new thing. And I can't even remember if there was Apple script in the original System 7 release or if that came slightly later. But, you know, Apple events were the basic building blocks of applications talking to each other, um, you know, down to the telling another application to quit or whatever. You just send it a quit Apple event. And and I am sure that all that stuff still exists in Mac OS X today, just buried under 13 layers of abstractions. Um and I actually know it does because I use still use Apple events for hotkeys because the API for global hotkeys, you can register for getting things and you get an Apple event handler. Anyway, point is, um, so I was doing that stuff back then because I thought it would be cool if you could, from some other application, like get the value that you're working on in pCalc and then do something with it and then set the value back into pCalc. And that was, yeah, I mean, as we say, 1992 was a little while ago. Um, and I think it was really DragThing, uh, particularly DragThing 2.0, which came out in 97, which was like the main thing where I started like getting really deep into this stuff because... Um, it was it supported Apple Script, and specifically, it was a thing called uh, scriptable and recordable, mm -hmm. which meant every action that you took in the application generated a line of Apple Script if you had recording switched on. So right. you could uh, write a script very easily just by you press record, do the thing you want to do, and then it would start spitting out each line of Apple Script, and uh, drag thing then could also run scripts. So if you just had a script file and you had it in a doc, you double clicked it, it would start running the script. So you could build things in drag thing that, uh, you know, you could, you could have a, a, a doc, which automatically populated with stuff. And, um, you could also set hotkeys to trigger scripts and run them and things like that. So it was kind of, a lot of people I know used it as a sort of early automation tool kind of thing, like a hub that they kept uh, mm. scripts in for 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 doing things, and uh, that was that was a kind of like that was ninety seven, and and I'm thinking about it, and that's quite a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, um, so just to to fill something in, you said you weren't sure if AppleScript came out with System Seven. I j I double checked. According to the Wikipedia page, it came out in System Seven. Uh, that was when it was first released. So uh, you were right about that. Um, and um, yeah, recordable is something I kind of forgot it existed because I knew it was an automator. Um, and 
the, th- the problem for me is I don't use script editor. I use script debugger by late night software because that's a mm. much better way of writing Apple script. I find it's just much easier to use. And, you know, if you had an application open recently, it prompts it as a dictionary, which is just very useful when all of them use slightly different terms to mean almost the same thing, but not really. Um, and, and so I forgot about recordable. Um, and I'm happy to report recording is still a function in Apple script. That's sad to report. I just tried it in Safari and it doesn't work. You'd think that Safari had support for recordable. Apparently I mean, the, the, the recordable stuff um, was an absolute pain to implement because basically yeah. every single thing you did in your logic, you had to um, emit. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember how it was actually implemented, but but yeah, you, you were you were making uh, all these. Uh, all this stuff like really into the heart of, of your code. Um, and it, it, you know, if you did it from the start, it wasn't terrible, but, um, there was a lot of things with Apple script in those days when, when you were trying to implement it, that was very hard because like, you know, all the stuff where you have all the little, like the clauses, like you give me all of these things where the name is this and this matches and this matches or whatever all that stuff you had to write yourself. Like there wasn't any support from Apple for doing that. So you would find apps that kind of worked. And then if you tried to make any complex query against them, it would just completely fall apart. It was, there was a, there was some open source uh, stuff from Apple written by uh, a friend of mine, in fact, but uh, that I used that made some of that easier, but it's, Easier today with AppKit because AppKit does a lot of the kind of heavy lifting of that stuff for you. But um, it just feels weird that I've been uh, working on Apple Script stuff for nearly 30 years. Yes. I mean, I can imagine it feels that way. I also imagine that it feels very weird that if, like me, you're currently going, hmm, I should put a link to Apple events in the show doc. Um, you you type it into Google and then you you realize that WWDC was announced shortly before we yes. record the show, <laughs> um, and 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 the, that's what everybody thinks an Apple event is nowadays. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll have to find some other source for that link that I can put in the show notes. Pro- probably buried somewhere on the Internet Archive if they're definitely have, haven't definitely. been sued into uh, non-existence by the time this comes out. Exactly. So, but I did find a, a guide on on the uh, recording actions and script editor on the Mac. So there we go. That at least that will be in the show docs for folks. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you really have to respect the foresight of putting Apple events in way back then because that wasn't a thing on windows it really no software plat or uh, computer platform had made user accessible automation that way where you could control another application through uh, something like an apple event i feel like the team that that came up with it really had something with it and i mean that's probably the same people that put together you know apple script at the same time um the, I, I I wish that the team that put together the iPhone had the same foresight because, <laughs> you know, they, there was an opportunity when iOS was an idea to do something like that, and they didn't. They chose not to, which is what led to kind of this long path towards shortcuts. But, uh, you know, Apple events and Apple Script are 
embedded in the operating system at this point. I mean, we hear from people on the inside all the time. They're using Apple script to keep Apple running. It's not going to go anywhere. And it really was the start of user-based automation in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just, you know, like just the Apple script, but they had the whole kind of um, underlying architecture that other people could do their own languages as well, because there was the um, frontier by userland was another system that was on top of the um the same foundations um and i i actually added support for running frontier scripts from drag thing entirely because douglas adams emailed me and asked if i would do it and it was like you, you just don't say no if you know uh if Douglas contacts you and said, could you do this? It's like, well, yes, of course. Well, that's, a, that's a name drop right there. <laughs> yeah. James mentioned earlier that somebody was a friend of his. Spoiler, folks. James knows everybody, or at least it feels like that. <laughs> I, James knows some people, but um, uh, Douglas was a beta tester for Drag Thing. Basically, I foisted a copy upon him at some point and said, you know, uh, you know, as as a as a not quite teenager, but you know, very young twenty year old, just sort of emailed him going, "Oh, I made this. Maybe you'd like it." And he he kind of came back to me and was like, "Oh, this is really cool." Uh, and then uh, I said, "Do you want a beta tester?" And uh, he said, "Oh, I'm not sure about beta software. You know, it's enough keeping my Mac going as it is." And I said, well, think of it more like early access or whatever rather than beta testing. It's like, oh, okay. Um, so, he, yeah, he sent me a number of kind of suggestions over the years. Um, and uh, I got to meet up with him at WWDC once. Uh, and he, is ex- he was extremely tall. Uh, I, am not, I am not a tall person, and he is a very tall person. And it, it, I have one photo um, of the two of us, but you can't really tell because it's the back of both of our heads and it was taken on a film camera and it was very badly exposed. So, you know, it's, it's, I know that it was me talking to Douglas, but it, there's no actual uh, physical proof from this photo. <laughs> what was his, what was his personality that you got to spend a little time with him? Yeah, he was. He seemed really nice. I mean, he was like obviously very enthusiastic about Apple, you know, yeah. Because I think he he was famously the first person in the UK to buy a Mac. I think Stephen Fry was second, um, and uh, he was really nice. Just kind of, I, I I'd need to find the exact quote, but we were talking about the the um, the G four Cube, and he called it something like you know. Uh, an elegant answer to a question that nobody was asking. And that <laughs> phrase is kind of stuck in my head. Uh, but, but yeah, he, he, you know, he gave, gave me his time. And, and uh, when I actually met him, he, you know, didn't say who the hell are you? He, he kind yeah. of said, said it was nice to meet me and all that. And it's kind of, this is one of these things of like, Ah, sometimes when you, you kind of meet a person like that, you know, just that five minute interaction or whatever just means probably way more to the person receiving it than maybe the person giving it, but it, it's, yeah. Well, I think you just accurately described how people feel when they meet you, uh, James. So 
Congratulations uh, on that. I, I I have only once felt mildly famous, um, and that was uh, I think it was 2018 WWDC, where we arrived and we went to the um, the Apple Park. Uh, whatever it's called the Mr. center the, like the gift shop Apple store. yes yes and i was recognized three times within the first half hour and i thought oh no this is gonna be this is i don't know what this is gonna mean for the rest of this conference i i'm not sure how i feel about this um <laughs> it, it didn't actually like after that it kind of settled down um and i was running around with a big peacock t-shirt and uh there was a on the top of the the visitor center. There's a bit where you could look out and you could see like a vague outline of a roof of Apple Park and a lot of trees. And people were getting the photos taken up there. Um, and there was a an Apple employee whose job it was to basically take photos of people and and be nice. And the guy there uh, pointed at my T-shirt or whatever and said that's a great app. Uh, and I said, Oh, thank you. And then he you know, took pictures, blah, blah, blah. And, and five minutes later he went, wait, are you James? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that is, that is the kind of thing that can only happen. Well, okay. I say only happen. Mostly only happens when you're like within a uh, one mile radius of uh, WWDC that there are enough people who might recognize you. However, there was one time I stepped out of my house and there was a guy in a car that was parked just outside and he kind of beckoned me over and I expected him to say, you know, do you know the way to so-and-so street or, or whatever? And he said, I just saw you on, uh, on Twit. And I was like, oh, and I thought, you just saw me come out of my house. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they say, ah, yes, I was just visiting a friend. Yes. Are you a nice person? I hope you're a nice person. <laughs> I'm sure the person was a nice person, and it was entirely coincidence, but it was just the weirdest coincidence of being recognized uh, visibly um, while next to my house. Yes. Um, I do not. I do not think of myself as famous and... Uh, I think there's a there's possibly a certain Britishness involved with anything that might suggest that you are a celebrity automatically is a negative. Um, anyway, I'm not a celebrity. It, it is funny for me because I, I get recognized at Disneyland all the time because we go there like once every week or two and people know that. And so people see me all the time there but the one the ones that are funny for me is when i'm at something like wwdc or back in the old days at MacWorld. i often would get recognized in elevators because someone would hear me talk because there's so many people that know what i sound like but not what i look like so i'd just be walking around and say oh sparky i recognize your voice you know the the, the best one of those was i was at a cafe with a variety of people and uh, including, I think it was like most of ATP and uh, Mike Hurley and CGP Grey. Yeah. And somebody came up to Mike and was saying to Mike, you know, oh, you know, really love all your podcasts or whatever. Um, you know, 
really love uh, Cortex. And, and Gray is just sitting there like stealth incognito because nobody really knows what he looks like. Yeah. And, and so he would, every time the person would say something more about Cortex, he would just kind of go, hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I remember one of a similar conversation to that because I also met you at um, WWDC in 2018. Um, and I remember sitting at a table and um, watching people talking to various other people, not realizing that Gray was sat there or you were sat there or something. And yeah. There's a hierarchy of fame at these things. And it's like, you know, if you're sat next to like the relay, um, Illum- I was, was going to say Illuminati, but that's not quite the right word. That's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the, scary. The, 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 you know, the, 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 the founder, shall we say, um, or you're sat there with the ATP folks. Nobody cares who you are. <laughs> that is, that's basically what it comes down to. Um, but, you know, if you're on your own, then maybe somebody uh, might come up. I mean, I've been doing this long enough uh, that maybe a few people might be. I mean, I, I think you also did some very good secret, both guerrilla marketing and also uh, disguise work by releasing Peacock t-shirts before WWDC. Because I know that you were not the only person wearing a, a Peacock t-shirt at WWDC because I was also wearing a Peacock t-shirt at WWDC. I'm continually amazed at the ability to sell t-shirts for a calculator. And it, I just did uh, a whole bunch of new shirts because basically Con Bureau was starting to charge for storing um, inventory. And I'm like, okay, I need to now make income to cover the cost of storing all these pins which are sitting in a warehouse somewhere for Cotton Bureau. Uh, that's not entirely why I did it. But yeah, I'd had print-on-demand T-shirts previously, and I was like, uh, uh, sorry, not print-on-demand, the, the um, campaign T-shirts. And I thought, well, let's look at the print-on-demand stuff. And, and I set that up. And uh, yeah, we, we sold like a few hundred T-shirts. And I was like, that... I I'm surprised. Um, I haven't I haven't bought one myself yet of this new round, partially because the weather hasn't been nice enough to wear t-shirts. Yes, yes. The problem with living in the UK, um, and you're further north than I am, so you know you, you have even worse weather than I do. But uh, I did have something called sunshine today for like two whole minutes. So you know I'll send it your way next time. I I can see some vague blue sky as I look out of the window, but yeah, it, it's only starting now to get um, vaguely nice out there but even with nice with the the threat of snow at any moment's notice uh, also um i think we're the same uh latitude as moscow or something so yeah the uk is surprisingly far north this episode of automators is brought to you by text expander when you work in a small team, every moment counts. You don't want to be wasting your time finding video conferencing details to send to a new client. You don't want to track down the same FAQs from the company website every time. These are the kinds of things you want at your fingertips so you can get work done faster, and that's why you need Text Expander. With Text Expander, you can access what you type the most with just a few keystrokes, allowing you to work faster and eliminate repetition, letting you focus on what matters most to you. Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations streamline your team's work. All you have to do is type a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest for you. You just build and collect your most commonly used phrases, messages, URLs, and more right within Text Expander. Then create your chosen abbreviation and they'll be with you wherever you type. 
You can even customize the snippets by having them automatically add in dates, fill in the blank fields, timestamps, and more. So make sure you still keep the personality and the communication you send. Text Expander is available on any device you use across any app you use on Mac, Windows, Chrome, and iOS. Personally, I use Text Expander for all sorts of things, but even just things where it's eliminating the copying and pasting from the same place and then accidentally copying an old version of the thing. Oh, yeah, no, I don't do that anymore because I have Text Expander. And so it boosts my productivity because it means that I don't have to worry about duplicating myself as well as my automations. If repetitive typing is getting you down, you need Text Expander. Check out Text Expander today at textexpander.com slash automators and you can get 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com slash automators to say goodbye to repetitive typing. Our thanks to Text Expander for their support of this show and Relay FM. So James, you started talking about home automation last segment and I put a pin in that. I would like to hear what are you doing? Because I could see you being as a guy who goes way down that rabbit hole if you had time. Yeah, so has started like this was kind of a pandemic project um i started messing around with um do you know the uh the miros uh power strips um that they were the first kind of like fairly readily available uh power strips in the uk uh with home kit support yeah and i got one of those and had it set up um purely it was just controlling a set of side lights in our living room and i what i it was just like i want to experiment with this see what it's see what it's like and uh that point didn't have any any home uh home pods or anything and this gradually grew although i kept running into weird problems with um things not wanting to talk to uh like certain uh wi-fi routers we had and certain channels and and was a pain currently it's stabilized um i i once made the mistake mistake of changing my network name i didn't realize Ooh. how bad that was yeah it's it's one of those things where a lot of people want to go hubless for automation um, and they're like, yeah, Hubless is way better. You know, I don't, I, I don't want any hubs to interfere with stuff like the the Hue Hub or whatever. It like, it's going to make my life more complicated. I just want Wi-Fi devices. Um, and um, every time somebody says that, I, I'm like, a little bit of me just goes, "Have you seen how difficult it is to add things to your Wi-Fi network, like yeah. that are not like your phone, because it's it's difficult, and then you have the complication of." Your Wi-Fi briefly drops, but the device just assumes that like the network doesn't exist anymore and has an existential crisis for like three days until it realizes that no, the network is back or whatever. And Meryl's devices are pretty good. I have some of them myself. I've had a couple of their light strips um, and one of their power strips, and they they work fine. Um, but I do personally really try to avoid Wi-Fi devices in favor of hubs because a single hub can usually be Etherneted to yeah. your router which means that you don't have the whole wi-fi configuration dance and even if you do have the wi-fi configuration it's a case of one device and then suddenly all of your lights are back or whatever um so yeah yeah changing your yeah. network name both brilliant and also terrible um the pro tip folks if you do have wi-fi home automation devices um and you do get given like a new router or something via your isp 
um, you can usually change the network name and password to make it the same as the old network name and password. And therefore, just continue living with whatever network name and password you previously had, which avoids many of these problems that James accidentally ran into by probably, hopefully, using a cool network name. But, but, you know, it's not obvious to people that, you know, you would want to have more devices, more hubs, and not Wi-Fi. If you're getting into home automation, you would think, oh, simplicity, I could just keep it all on one network. But in yeah. addition to the problems Rose was talking about, uh, there's network traffic problems. You know, the more things you put on the Wi-Fi, the more the bandwidth gets crowded, the slower everything gets and with yeah. a lot of these independent hub or puck devices that come with their own hub, uh, they're usually in a radio space that is not in your Wi-Fi space. So they, they're more stable. And, um, and, and I didn't know that either. When I first started buying things, I was like, oh, Wi-Fi, yeah. You know, and now it's like, ooh, Wi-Fi bad. Like I, I want to put some strip lights in my studio, James. I've been thinking about doing that. And I keep looking at the Miros, but their Wi-Fi. And it's like, no, I need to find something that's on its own. And maybe, I don't know what I'm going to, what vendor I'm going to use. There's a couple of them that make strip lights that are on their own pucks. And I'm actually seeking them out, you know, buy yourself a little switch, get some short ethernet cables and just fill your closet. So I basically, I had started with one room and replaced all the lights in one room. And we were, it was working reasonably well. And we ended up with uh, a pair of, well, first one HomePod mini and then a second one, which now work as their stereo set for our television connected to the Apple TV. And virtually everything that we watched on television is through the Apple TV. So, you know, um, I have that. And so we were just switching the lights off and on in the room with uh, Siri. And Siri... 90% 90% works. Um, usually it's the it's the trigger that fails for me for some reason. Um, but anyway, the, because pandemic, nobody else was coming into our, our place. So it didn't really matter that, it, you know, if some random person was here, that they couldn't actually operate anything, um, like couldn't switch the lights on and off. And so I kind of wanted to get away from that. And I've spent like over the last you know, four months or something, I've been, I got indeed the aforementioned Hue Hub and I've got a lot of Hue lights everywhere. And uh, I've also, uh, I got the little Hue buttons, uh, the, just the tiny round ones. And there's a company that makes uh, the little plates that clip on over your, your light switches. Mm-hmm. And so I've got that over there so the lights nobody can reach and accidentally switch the lights on and off um and the light is exact the light switch is exactly where you think it is so my brain it's like i reach for the light switch it's slightly more fleshy and squishy than i remember but it does the right thing when i press it um and so now there are one two three four rooms that have some hue lights in them and I've got uh, a motion sensor in the hall. And that is, that's by far been the, the best thing because it's like I am just walking towards the hall and it, it awakens for me and the lights come on. And yeah. then a minute later, the light goes off again. Yes. And 
this was one of the things that in the, in the lead up to this, I was I was looking into because I'd seen the t- tell of instead of using the motion sensors, which are great for places that you go in and out of, like a like oh, a hallway, yeah. but they're useless as I discovered um, if you want them in your main room because they you're not moving on the sofa and it just decides well this person has gone or died i will switch the lights off yes yes and so i i spent quite a while trying to work out could i do something clever and this was where i was messing around with the the shortcut stuff uh, it's like could i write code for my house so that i could do something clever using these sensors and try and and, and the answer is no no you can't because uh it, you can do something that works for one person, but then as soon as you've got any more than one person, it, it's it's hard. So I had been seeing about these presence sensors. So I was looking that up, and uh, Rose sent me a link to uh, the the one that apparently you should look at. Um, yeah, yeah, because there there have been some various things um, in this uh, in, in this area for a while, um, and I'm just going to circle back by the way and and say that I've done exactly what you've done, James, with the light switches. I bought light switch um, covers. Um, I don't have the Philips round hue round buttons. I've got like the four button ones um, mm. over there because then the top one is on, the bottom one is off, and the middle one like controls brightness or something. And so when people go, wait, this is different. They then look at it and go, well, this one looks like an on, and they press in. Oh, look, it's on, but by which time the lights have already turned themselves on. One of the things I wanted for ages was Hi-Ohm. Um, And basically what it is is this tiny little like motion sensor that you stick above a door. Okay, And so every door in the room will need one of these on. And it counts people in and it counts people out. Um, and that's all it does. But then by counting, it knows how many people are in a room and therefore whether or not the room is occupied. Um, And this, for me, is like the simplest way of, are there people in the room? Count people in, count people out. Simple. Um, The downside to this is I have never once gone to the Hyome website and clicked order now and discovered that I could order it and it's no longer available. Um, So, yeah, uh, as of January, it was became defunct and no longer available. And I think a lot of this is due to the um, development of mm wave sensors an mm wave is millimeter wave and essentially it is a is a person here sensor so it's not a motion sensor in the sense that like the philips hue motion sensor is like oh there is movement i see person there is no movement there is no person it is a is somebody there sensor um which is a good idea uh david has one and he's had a few uh issues with it and um i have two of them I did have some issues with one of mine for a while, and then I installed a firmware update on it. I installed a firmware update on my Zigbee Hub, and then everything's working fine with that, which is great. Um, so um, it, it's certainly worth looking into, but the Akara FP1 is sort of the probably best one to try there, um, just because it it does MM Wave. And this may be something in its favor for some people this may be against it for some other people it's usb powered um so there are no batteries to change now the philips hue sensors aren't that big but they use a triple a battery the akara regular motion sensors are tiny 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 um and they use a cr2032 battery um which is like a watch battery 
um, and they are like the size of that. The Akara FP1 is closer to the size of the Philips Hue sensor, but it's just USB powered. But it is a very good sensor, I found. Um, especially now I know how to use it, um, it is even better. Um, so that is certainly what I would look into for those rooms where you continue to exist after you stop moving. You know, like places where you sleep, places where you sit, places maybe where you stand still for a while. Uh, I found just motion sensor in my hallway doesn't cut it. Um, or in my shower, uh, bathroom specifically, because where where my motion sensor is in the bathroom is great for detecting person went into the bathroom. Is not great for detecting person is still in the bathroom and is showering, uh, for example. So I just added a door sensor. The door is closed. The bathroom is occupied. Um, so that's a, a simple technique there. I, I, I read something about the present sensors, which suggested that they take, you know, like five to 10 seconds to register a person. Um, and that some people were pairing them with a, with a traditional motion sensor to kick the lights on and then use the present sensor to keep them on. And I was like, that's interesting, but this is getting complicated. It, 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 it does sound complicated. Um, I, I don't have one in this room because I have a vibration sensor on the back of my office chair, which is quite happily telling the, the office that my room is in use. Also, my computer being on tells my office that this room is in use, um, you know, providing, you know, there's mouse movement or a keyboard input or something like that. Um, but I haven't, so I took all of the other motion sensors out of my living room. Like I didn't physically take them out, but I took them out from a technical perspective so that I would know whether or not my living room was occupied. Um, and I like just barely put a foot inside the door from the hallway and it's on. I'll tell you though, my uh, human presence sensor is slow. Um, and I've tried, at first I thought it was because I was going through um, uh, a car. Then I thought it was going through, I put it directly into home assistant and it's, it's not slow and that like it takes forever, but there is like probably three to five seconds between the time I walk in the room and the lights turn on from it. Whereas the, uh, the IR sensor is much faster so that's actually a pretty good idea to have an IR in there and just have that as a trigger and then use a human presence to turn it off. Like if there's nobody in the room, turn it off. I think that actually would probably solve the problem for me. But then you're getting into a situation where you've got multiple automations that you need to track. And yeah, and you start bumping against the, the fringy edges of HomeKit and start yeah. looking at something like Home Assistant where you have more control. Yeah, because how I would solve this in Home Assistant is I'd just create a group with those two sensors in. And then when either of them is on, the group is on. And when both of them are off, the group is off. And then you just, you have the group and you work with the group instead of each individual sensor. But that doesn't work if you're just staying in HomeKit. But I think if you add something like Home Plus, then you may be able to use multiple triggers. Um, I would need to double check that um, to to make sure because I know... Um, that Home Plus has recently released uh, an update with some cool stuff that it does, but I don't remember if multiple triggers in automations were something that it supported or not. So I will have to experiment and report back on that. I just want somebody to release a nice integrated IR and uh, present sensor in a HomeKit specific or, or at least supporting uh Whatever matter. protocols yeah, matter, matter, probably. Yeah. But uh, I just want that as a one thing that I can deploy that will work. I mean, 
is it too much to be able to just want to walk through my house and have the lights follow me and and say hello to me as I walk into rooms? I mean, even in Star Trek, they said computer lights. I know. So, um, you know, may, maybe we just need to, to all use Amazon's Echo system and, and change the trigger word to computer. We're so close, though. You know, it is. You're right. That's such an obvious problem. And we're so close. Yeah. Yeah. Like my house does a very good job but I'm also the only person here most of the time. That said, it does work with more than one person in the house. So I feel like that's quite useful. Also, how do the present sensors work with animals? That is my question. It depends on where you put them. I will have to do some tests. The animals or the sensors? Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I I like all the ideas in principle, and at the moment it does... It does still feel that the stuff is getting not that not that it's out of reach of most people, but you have to do quite a bit of work to get it set up so that there's, as I say, there's light switches on the walls that regular human beings can use. Um, uh, but I like the idea of just you know I wouldn't have to tell anybody anything and they would just walk into rooms and lights would come on. And, uh, of course, as I discovered. Uh, I have the, I had the the hue sensor in the hallway, which was great until something happened at like four or five a.m., and I like stagger out of bed into the hall to find out whatever it was, and then the light just went on full, and I was like, okay, now I cannot see because I have been blinded by my helpful light. Yes. Um, I have now got it set to the absolute minimum, but even the absolute minimum brightness on a hue light is still. Too bright for five in the morning when you're tired. Yes. Uh, I I have solved this problem by um, putting a smart plug in my hallway, which is a power monitoring smart plug. Um, So it tells me how much uh, electricity my dehumidifier is using. And this happens to have a colored ring around it. Um, Now, this is not HomeKit compatible. Um, I picked it up from AliExpress and then took it apart to make sure it wasn't going to burn my house down before putting it back together. <laughs> um, and I, w- I will put a link to it in the show notes, folks, because I don't expect you all to take apart some random purchase from AliExpress and check whether or not it's going to burn your house down um, before putting it back together and installing it in your hallway. But it means that I have something in my hallway, which is a nightlight, and that comes on. So I have two of the tiny little Akara motion sensors um, sort of like adjacent to my bed. And if I put like a foot out of bed in the night to like get up, then it will turn on that light um, and um, some other very dim lights so that I can then see enough to go to the bathroom without blinding myself. Um, but the actual overhead lights don't come on at night because I like yeah. to retain some semblance of eyesight. <laughs> I, I'm, I have the opposite problem in that I have a humidifier rather than a dehumidifier. And I, I've been looking at that because... Um, the ones that I've got, they're not, they don't speak HomeKit, uh, but uh, I can't remember what, what the app is. Uh, but what you can do with them is you just set up, you know, like automatic parameters of yeah. if it's below this, do this. And that's fine. But now my I've got like multiple HomePods scattered throughout the place, which ha- which know the humidity. And I'm thinking, huh, maybe I should do it that way and have use the home kit side of things to track humidity and to switch these things on off and on. Although I have an orange home pod mini, which is refusing to give me 
any humidity data whatsoever. And I have no idea why. It's running the latest software. As far as I can tell, it is like it's a real one, but it just won't give me the 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 temperature or the um the humidity readings. Maybe it gave the sensors to Stephen Hackett. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I mean, he steals all orange things, so it exactly. makes sense. I think the solution for you, James, really is at this point to go deeper down the rabbit hole. I mean, you program the dock for the Mac, so you're capable of way more than me. And uh, uh, there are solutions like Home Assistant is one Rose has hooked me on where it, it is kind of walks the Goldilocks line of of complication but simplicity. But the question is, do you want to? <laughs> but something like that, you would be able to say, if I go in the hallway and it's 2 a.m., put it at 1%. But if I go in the hallway and it's 10 p.m., put it at 20%. Or, I mean, you have a, a, a vast amount of options and triggers available to you if you go up like one level. And the nice the, thing the about question, that, yeah, do you want to, right? The question is, do I want, like, as I said yeah. before, do I want to be writing code for my house? Yeah. And and this this is like, I know I could do it. I know I could have all the, the various bridges and, and things, and I could bring stuff into HomeKit. I just kind of want it all to work. And I'm hoping that, you know, with the advent of matter and whatever, like in five years or whatever, yeah. this will all work. Um, and even the random thing bought off AliExpress will just integrate into this and will not require, you know, 13 firmware updates and yeah. uh, a magic spell to make it work. Okay. But what are you going to do for the five years in between? And like, Stumble I'm not offering this to podcast, but I'm going to say you are a train ride away from me, James. You know, if you, if you wanted somebody to just come in and like deliver a little microcomputer that hooks into all the things and offers magic, including traces when stuff doesn't work the way it's supposed to, that tells you why it went wrong, then then that could be arranged. I mean, uh, your personal concierge service is uh, uh, an appealing aspect of this, I will say. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I can see like the advantage of everything. And at the moment, I've, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm sticking all the bricks together and sometimes the bricks don't go the way I expect them to, or like they're not even the right kind of bricks. Um, fake Lego everywhere. Um, and it, it's just kind of, I, I, I can see all the things and there's like, you know, behind me, I have an on-air sign and I'm like, okay, I've got that in home kit. Cause it's, it's, it's now effectively a hue light and okay. I could tie that into something so that when I hit record on my Mac, the on-air light comes on. This seems perfectly plausible, you know, and I've got the bits. I have, you know, I have a, I have my um, uh, stream deck sitting in front of me here. And in fact, it's your stream deck, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody just buys bigger and bigger stream decks. Um, and, I, you know, I could do all these things and I just haven't put the pieces together because it feels a bit like my day job, um, if more frustrating, if that were possible. Yeah. Well, and frustrating that it's not entirely consistent still. And I don't know if like the, the five year in the future, it's going to be consistent or it's just going to be differently inconsistent. Uh, but I, I have hope for this stuff and, and I can see, you know, like 
there's a lot of like I love the the hue system. You know, um, I know people think they're overpriced for what they are, and yes, I can see that. But the stuff basically just works, um, and there's there's a lot of control in 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 the hue app, and you can still have it all talking to HomeKit as well. And as you say, you don't have to repair re-pair all your lights when uh your wi-fi network goes berserk um, yes and and i like it for that and i like i like the fact that i have a, a high degree of confidence that if i press the light switch the light will switch on which i know is a low bar but it it feels like i've only just got there after you know spending all the money Yes. Um, and I, I will note something else uh, with Hue. Um, you know, it is pricier stuff, but the color is actually accurate. If you select red, you will get red. If you select orange, you will get orange, which is not red and it's not yellow. It's actually orange. Green is green and so on and so forth. And this may sound very obvious to some people, but buy a very cheap, smart, and I'm using air quotes for that, light from Amazon or wherever. And I can guarantee you that the colors will probably not be as bright as Ikea, uh, as as the Hue stuff. Like there was an Ikea light that a friend uh, was having an issue with a while ago where green just was kind of yellowy. Um, it was an older Ikea light, not a, a new Ikea light. Um, the newer ones are better, uh, I have to say. But it, it won't be as bright and the colors just won't be as accurate. Um, and with Hue, you, you might be paying a chunk of money, but you're going to get something bright and colorful that is actually the colors that you wanted. And that is certainly, at least in my opinion, worth paying for if you if you want colorful lights in your home then you, you want the colors to actually be the colors that you want and even the the sort of the 20 quid um you know like 100 watt equivalent white uh lights they're you know 20 quid is relatively expensive but it's not too bad um and they're, they're fine for, like i've got them in in the hallway and stuff because i don't necessarily need to have a you know, bright purple hallway, although, you know, I can see the appeal, obviously. Yes. Yeah. I've tended to leave the actual colored lighting for accent lights. So my overhead lights are the white ambience lights with the exception of, um, the bedroom where I already had a colored light. Um, and sometimes that can be quite nice. Like I've not been very well for the last few days. So where I've had the light turn on, um, to provide like actual light, I've had it turn on a very sort of orangey color rather than, um, you know, white, um, just because that doesn't wake me up as much, but it still allows me to see the box of tissues that has escaped to the floor once again. And so that I can retrieve it, and blow my nose and go back to sleep. Um, so yeah, it's, it's useful to have colored lights, um, at least in, in some areas, but yeah, when you want white lights, you probably just want bright and maybe a little bit of ambience. Yeah. So I, I, I keep looking at all the other, um, hue products and it's like, and I start to think, you know, it's one of those things that snowballs. You go like, well, I'd like a light strip, you know, and I could put that behind the TV. But then if I got the good ones, then I could get the box which connects it to the TV and so on. I'm quite annoyed, by the way. And I, I, I complain to you because I can't complain to LG that it's only the Samsung televisions have the tie-in with you that they can um, do the, you know, match, match what's on the screen with the lights uh, behind them thing. Um, they can do it natively without you having to buy the expensive box and the LGs don't. I mean, if, if, you, if you'd like a different way to spend money, James, allow me to introduce you to something that David and those listeners in the US cannot get. The Philips Ambilight TV 
has the lights built into it. And this is what I have. A different way to spend money, as I, as I said. You, but you don't have to buy the light strip or the box. It's all just there. I think there's only a certain number of uh, televisions that I can buy in a 10-year period without it drawing attention to the fact that I'm doing it. Yeah, you, you've cut your limit. <laughs> well, I bought, I, I got uh, one of the LG uh, not OLED ones, a 4K one. And I was like, well, this is good, but it's not, you know, it's like you could tell, even though it was one of these things where it's supposed to have, you know, all these lighting zones behind it or whatever, there was like a logo bouncing on the screen and you could just see this giant halo of backlight following it around. And I'm like, okay, this is not good enough. Um, And then I got a... I think it was the, I got the PlayStation 5 and I'm like, well, I should really probably, you know, do it justice and get an OLED. And I got one, of, I got a, at least I got a deal on the LG C1s because the C2 was coming out like the next month or something. So I got it half price or something. But I think I'm set with televisions for uh, a while. That's a shame. Because uh, my 12-year-old TV died and I got an Ambilight and I have to say, I do love it. This episode of the Automators Podcast is brought to you by Electric. Unbury yourself from IT tasks and get a free pair of Beats Solo 3 wireless headphones when you schedule a qualifying meeting. Just go to electric.ai slash automators. When leading your small business, it's not all glamour. In fact, sometimes it's a matter of spending hours onboarding an employee, which you're well-equipped to deal with, but you maybe don't have time for. The team over at Electric knows that, and they know small businesses like yours face these challenges all the time. That's why they're on hand to help with the time-consuming parts of your business, like standardized device security with best-in-class device management software, so you can implement best practices across the board to be ready to scale. Employee onboarding and offboarding done for you, saving you an average of eight hours per request, keeping a single point of visibility into your IT environment to control your devices, networks, and applications, and simplified reporting that allows you to achieve and maintain compliance. With Electric, you get proactive IT recommendations and automated workflows to make IT easier to manage for even non-technical users. And look, if you're hearing this and you think your company could use some of these services, but you're not sure where to start, Electric's experts will guide you through the process of establishing standardized IT processes for your organization. If you're listening to this show, you have the curse of technology knowledge. That means that you're able to do a lot of this stuff on your own and for your team, but that doesn't mean you should. I know that I fall into the trap all the time of trying to do this stuff myself when I should be focused on the business. Don't make the same mistake I do. Get Electric to take care of these problems for you. And for Automator's listeners, Electric is offering a free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones for taking a qualifying meeting. Just go to electric.ai slash automators. That's electric.ai slash automators. Go there now and get your free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones today for scheduling a meeting. And our thanks to Electric for their support of the automators. James, as somebody who was one of the original supporters of Apple events, you have a history with Apple Script, and I know you still use it to this day. Um, I think there's a lot of listeners who do want 
to do more Apple script. I think there's a lot of things on your Mac, at least, that really can only be accomplished with it. Um, what are you using it for, and how do you trigger it? And I have a number of things, um, particularly when I'm like dealing with customers. Like the typical thing, I get a lot of people emailing, slightly less these days, but emailing in saying, I've lost my serial number. And yeah. it's a very common thing. So I have an Apple script, which will go in and it will like pull things out of the email, like their name, their email address, and any other details that it can find. Start doing fuzzy matches across the various databases that I have that have got old serial numbers in them. And then if it finds something, I push a button and it just replies to the current email and, you know, here are your details. And I don't need to do anything at all. I just need to press send if it works. Um, and it's stuff like that that I find Apple Script really useful for because, you know, if if you're talking to things like Mail or you're talking to, um, in this case, it's FileMaker Pro database or whatever, a lot of the older apps anyway have pretty solid Apple Script support that you can go in and you can do exactly what you need to do. Um, and, you know, you can have a button inside uh FileMaker to trigger stuff as well. So, you know, if you once it's found things, I've got a button, I hit that, and it goes back and it it uh talks to mail and and creates the reply and sets up all the all the stuff. And I do other things, particularly with mail as well. Like I've got, you know, just a script which will take um if I'm sending out an email to beta testers, I will I write an email and I press a button and it will fire off individual emails to each of the people using apple script to to build those and send those um and it, it's that kind of stuff with just like extending out uh the functionality of of these apps like mail uh which i think is the key thing that i i use but i mean i've got apple script everywhere um and because uh because I've got Apple Script and shortcuts support in my apps, I also need to write lots of scripts to test all the functionality. Um, that was one of the things that I I had in uh, DragThing. One of the scripts that shipped and actually shipped with DragThing was a script that exercised every single Apple Script property in the app. Um, so it would just sort of go through and it would test every everything, um, and then when it inevitably failed, I would realize that I broke something in the Apple script support, but uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that kind of using Apple script as a testing tool. Um, and I don't, I don't have those, uh, I don't have it quite as refined for shortcuts yet. Um, I think like, uh, Peacock on the Mac and Dice by Peacock on the Mac both support Apple Script and shortcuts, and they're not hundred percent one for one because the shortcut support uh, certainly for Peacock came from the iOS version of Peacock, and I could just pull that code across and and, and it all just worked. Um, but because the approach is quite different um, between the two, I. I I like shortcuts from the perspective of making things, you know, like taking the the building blocks, which are much more high level, 
and not really having to worry about the syntax of a programming language. Um, I don't like its approach to how it does things with the apps. Um, but I think that my mental model is much more like Apple script where you're kind of, you're sending commands you're sending commands in, but you can you can see basically a version of the app through the Apple Script interface, and you can and talk to it. Whereas the the shortcuts approach is much more kind of high level, do this thing, um, and it's not so good for like if I wanted to expose every uh, setting in PCalc or, yeah. or Dice through shortcuts, it would be quite painful to to do that as an interface. Yeah, because shortcuts essentially, at least to me, seems to have two methods of integrating with an app. Either do something in the app and open the app in the process of doing it and yes. show it to the user, or do it but don't really interact with the app, kind of like just drop something there, maybe have it run a function or something, but the app itself isn't really involved in the process and doesn't necessarily know about stuff, which can lead to some weird things like if you do something in some apps, like it doesn't sync, so it's not available elsewhere. So you then have to run another shortcut action, which opens the app and then have an automation that when that app opens, it then closes, it opens shortcuts or something. And it, it, you end up kind of working around it. And that, that, that to me is an end user feels frustrating. So I can imagine that it feels much the same way to you. For PCalc, that was an interesting thing because, you know, you have the, you can either have stuff open the app or you can do it within uh, shortcuts world. And for PCalc, I have an entirely separate copy of the PCalc code, like the, the calculation engine, which sits inside the shortcut extension. And so you can talk to that and you can ask it to do a whole bunch of things. And it's just running its own little copy there. And it saves it to the same uh, space on disk, basically, where the main app also saves stuff. So then by the time when you open up the main app, it says, oh, I see things have been going on. I will, I can take this uh, right. in, into my state. Uh, but it does get complicated when you have, you know, you have the app open and then particularly I was doing this with Dice because that, that's a good example because like I have a thing where you can say, you can pass it a string. So it'll be like, you know, 4D6 plus 2 or something like that. And it will, it can take that string and then it can break all that down and you can do more complicated things than that, obviously. It'll break that down. And then uh, in the shortcuts thing, I just have a random number generator, which, you know, rolls some virtual dice, uh, but completely uh, cheaply. Um, and then uh, can return the value. Or you can click an option and you can say, now op but open the app to do it. So it'll fire up the app, roll the dice as 3D objects, wait for them to settle, and then uh, return that back through shortcuts to the function that called it. And I don't know how useful it is because they both provide exactly the same result that you can roll dice and you can get a numerical value back. But I like the fact that I can fire up the big app and do the, the silly 3D thing and then get the answer back. But yeah, writing all these things, writing automation support is difficult. And I think there's a reason why a lot of apps don't do it well. I'm not saying that I do it perfectly, 
But, you know, you come across apps that have nothing, you know, no Apple script, no shortcuts. And uh, part of that is because it's, it's hard and it's annoying and it's brittle and things break. And then mm-hmm. Apple says, oh, no, that way that we were doing shortcuts for the last couple of years, well, throw away all your code and here's a completely new way of doing it in Swift. And you go, okay, well, maybe next year. Uh, yes, yes. Or as I recently discovered, um, because they've added this whole, you know, concept of um, exposing data to shortcuts so that you can have it, you know, give it a thing that it can query and it can return results from that. Um, And shortcuts, um, uh, like, has various actions that can do a not contains filter. There is no not contains filter natively in shortcuts. (laughs) So there is is and is not, and there is contains. Um, and there is greater than and less than. But not contains is not a native like filter that you can use for this. And yet I see it in the files action. And I have spent quite a bit of time attempting to reinvent the wheel. Bearing in mind I'm not a Swift developer here, so you know, any time that I've spent on it would be, you know, considerably less if done by somebody who actually knew what they were doing. Um, but you know, I've spent quite a bit of time going, surely this must be possible because Loads of other like developers have done this, but my conclusion is that they've all had to invent their own wheel to do this. Um, and uh, yeah, so shortcuts, folks, if you're listening, please can you just add a not contains filter because it, it it should literally just be a boolean flip for you, um, and 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 that would be easy. But me extending a final class, not possible. So uh, yeah, I think uh, you know Apple Script, as we've pointed out, is thirty plus years old and is you know has been mature and one might say, unchanging for about 20 of those years. Um, so, you know, Shortcuts is relatively a baby uh, compared to that. And it's not mm. surprising that stuff is taking a while to kind of stabilize. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm not, I would not throw, say, oh, you know, these these newfangled shortcut things are terrible. It's more, stuff has been a bit brittle from the developer side for a while. And, you know, uh, it's not always straightforward and you know you can sometimes like a few years ago or whatever they changed a bunch of stuff and i was like okay i've spent my summer basically getting back to the point that i was beforehand yeah um and yeah it's not always it's i don't i don't have any analytics in my apps which is one of those kind of um point of principle things you know, it, it's like no, I don't want to. I don't want to know what you're doing, um, which is good, but it also means I don't know what people are doing. Yeah. And I did have Apple once. There was like there was a feature or something, and somebody was like, you know, so what do people use your application for? I'm like, I have literally no idea. <laughs> you know, it's a calculator. They calculate things, um, and uh, I I had. Uh, I basically, I, you know, because I needed to give Apple an answer to this, I was, I asked a bunch of people, do you know people who use this and do you know what they use it for? And the answers that I got back were terrifying in that there was one person who was using it to calculate the amount of um, anesthetic to give people who were going <laughs> under for <laughs> operations. And, and I'm like, well, that's terrifying. And then they added for children. <laughs> it's like okay so you'll never so, ask that question again 
<laughs> well, the, um, I do know that I've sold uh, copies of Peacock, and this was a, a long time ago, back in the days when you actually knew who you were selling to. Uh, I'd sold copies of Peacock to the um, White Sands uh, facility in the U.S., uh, who are the people who maintain the nuclear weapons. I mean, this reminds me of a story that my my boss at my day job told me where somebody who uh, created or helped create XML was giving a presentation on stage about XML and they came off stage and somebody was like, yeah, XML is really cool. We use it all the time. What do you do? Oh, you know, nuclear missiles. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just go pretend that you didn't say that and that this is definitely suitable for that. So yes. everything, everything uses nuclear, like or n- nuclear missiles use everything. PCALC, XML, it's all completely intended for this purpose, obviously. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, you think, you know, something like a calculator is like simple and apolitical and, you know, all you need to do is make sure that, you know, two plus two equals four and you're good. Um, and then you find out what people are using things for and you think, oh, well, all software is like, you know, even things like I was, there was a, um, we were talking about analytics and no analytics. And I, I wanted to know because PCALC has got, uh, like 50 plus alternative app icons. Right. And I was curious which were the popular ones? Because I was thinking, you know, if I was going to do T-shirts for these, as I have now done thousands of T-shirts, um, uh, it would be cool to know which icons people liked uh, so that I would know which T-shirts to make. And you think, that's great. A lot of the icons are pride flags. So basically what I would be getting from that analytics is, you know, like sexual orientation and and... And I'm like, oh no, okay, no, we can't do any of that. That is a terrible idea. Don't collect any data. And then I went back to my ideas of, yes, uh, I will have no data uh, because even the most innocuous thing, you start to think about it and you think, yeah, I, d- I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where th- this data should have absolutely no meaning anywhere because anybody can choose any app icon. Um, but I can also completely understand not wanting to collect that data because for some people it means something. And yeah. for those people, yeah, having that data exposed could be a bad thing. So thank you for not collecting data. And I'm sorry it makes your life more difficult. But also thank you for making your life more difficult for people. It, it's fine. All I did was I made uh, t- like, I think it was somewhere in the 30 30- range of t-shirts when i did the, the new films it's like because it's print on demand i could just make any and so i just made all of them and yes. you know that that's the easy solution is uh don't collect data have infinite variations in your uh, t-shirt designs simple and those t-shirt designs are linked in the show notes by the way folks <laughs> I, w- I want to loop back though at the beginning of the segment you were talking about the automation you're doing in apple mail with apple script and i think that does demonstrate uh, one of the limitations of shortcuts. Uh, shortcuts is super powerful. I'm a big fan of it. I feel like a lot of people are automating that never did before because of shortcuts, and that's good. But Apple Mail in particular doesn't have a lot of shortcuts implementation. The uh, Apple Mail team, for whatever reason, has has kind of limited what you do, and they've got different feature sets on iPhone and iPad versus the Mac. Whereas on your Mac, 
you know, with that limitation, it can only happen on your Mac. It's an Apple event based Apple script. Um, it is, there's a rich amount of automation you can do in Apple mail only with Apple script. And I think the fact that you do that is something people should take note of because if you're out there and you don't have to be a programmer, maybe you're a stockbroker or a, a teacher or whatever. Um, but if you want to automate email and you're willing to do it just at your Mac, there is a lot you can do with Apple script that really there is no other way to do it. You know, I see all these um, fancy email clients that promise all sorts of, um, you know, automation in the cloud. And I basically look at them and I go, uh, I don't actually want to hand over all my login details to all my email servers to you for you to do this stuff. Yeah. I, again, it comes down to my, um, you know, I, I have I, I have a pretty hard line approach to privacy stuff, or at least I try to. Um, and yeah, so ha- yes, I can only do stuff on my Mac or on my Macs. But I, I like the fact that it's local and I, I'm not, you know, um, sending people's customer data back and forth, uh, particularly because, it, you know, who knows what terrible GDPR crime you could be committing accidentally. Are there any fun script tricks you're doing in Apple Mail that bring you joy and delight? Anything uh, that you had? Like, for instance, I have one. If I type X high, it takes the addressee's name from the from the uh, to field that inserts it. So it would say, hi, James, if I wrote one to you, and I don't have to type your name. Any of those little like things that make you happy when you do the scripting in Apple Mail? Um, no, but that is a really good idea, and I should do something like that. I'll, because... I'll share it with you. I, I think I've posted it. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes for it. I'm going to check just out of curiosity and see if I can see when I wrote these scripts because that is probably going to tell me something. Um, okay, mail scripts. When did I write these? <laughs> One of those things which may or may not cause an existential crisis. I hope not, um, but um, you never know. So the answer is I did all this stuff in 2010. So it was yeah. 13 years ago. I wrote and they still work? And they still work fine. And I challenge you to have a shortcut that was written three years ago that, you know, works flawlessly. I have a few of those. So I I, I could take that challenge, but I, I know where you're coming from with this. They're they're pretty yeah. simple. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that um, you know, with the best will in the world, you you cannot guarantee that a shortcut that works today will work with the next release of um, iOS or macOS. Um, and this, unfortunately, is somewhat compounded by the fact that uh, we we recently got the news that Alex Hay, the creator of Toolbox Pro, has actually passed away, which means that his app, Toolbox Pro, and, and the other apps that he's created will you know, presumably not be supported anymore. Um, and so if you are using those, unfortunately, uh, it, it is time to look for an alternative because we cannot guarantee that they'll work with iOS 17. Um, and... So it, it yeah, well those things where Apple Script, um, as dead as a dodo may be, uh, we we still have stuffed dodos around and they still look like dodos. Apple Script, it's a bit more alive than a dodo, but it, it's not that dissimilar. <laughs> well, I let me just interrupt there. I I don't think Apple Script is dead. I don't think it's going to be uh, actively added to. 
But I think it's working just fine. And I don't think Apple has any intention of removing it. I don't think they even could if they wanted to. I mean, you say that, but like I remember when all the 32 bit apps, including every single traditional Mac app, went away, you know, all the carbon stuff. And it's like Apple, certainly from my developer perspective, Apple don't have any problem with turning around one year and saying, oh, yeah, that thing, that thing's not a thing anymore. And you go, but I use that thing. And they go, well, you know, find a new thing. Yeah, but uh, it, but wasn't it, it wouldn't it take active work for them to remove Apple Script? I mean, it's not something. I, the, the thing is, I don't think at this point, Shortcuts is a full replacement for Apple Script. Yeah. So I don't think they would remove it yet. But would I take a bet on Apple Script still being in the system in 10 years? Mm, I don't know. I mean, five years, probably. I mean, th- like these things, a lot of things stay around because, you know, there's, there's inertia and people are, you know, busy working on cars and AR goggles and whatever and don't have the time to just go in and rip out stuff. But I, I honestly would not be surprised if at some point Apple just said, look, we are duplicating effort. Uh, it's time to f- focus on this. This is a new way of doing things. And uh, Apple is not a sentimental company. I mean, individuals perhaps, but overall, no. Yeah, but I mean, that applies, 10 years applies to anything Apple makes. I mean, we would you bet that shortcuts exist in 10 years? I mean, it may not. You just never know. What I mean, gonna- it, it, it may transform in that time, but I, I would say that it will still exist. Um, for me, Apple Script support is not going to go away while apps are not universal apps. Um, and an obvious candidate of this is mail, um, which we talked about before. Um, and David, you mentioned it, it doesn't have um, full shortcut support. Um, it, it doesn't by a long shot on iOS, but on iOS, it has this little action. Um, in fact, it's got a couple of little actions. It's got open mailbox. It's got search in mail, which is pretty cool. Um, and then it's got this tiny little action that I'm sure nobody ever uses called send email. <laughs> you know, that 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 feels yeah. like it's basically not required at all. And then I look at the mail actions on macOS. No. Like I'm summarizing here. There, there is an action for email address. There's get email addresses from input. There's select email address. These are all also on iOS. And then there's set mail focus filter, which is available on iOS and macOS. But that's a focus filter action, not a mail action. There is no send mail email action yeah. in shortcuts on macOS. Uh, by the way, mail to you, if you're listening... I got a re- like a lovely little piece of low hanging fruit as we record this or like as this releases. It's it's just about April, okay. You've got a couple of months. Do me a favor, stick it in the beta, please, please. Uh, and if folks, if you know somebody on the mail team, please send them a nice little gift basket and 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 just say t- like with a little shortcuts icon as like the gift tag or something. Like don't like har- harass them or anything. Send them presents because we like the mail team. They make a good app, but shortcut support, please. It's one of these things that if we do complain about stuff, like if we say, oh, this support isn't as good as whatever, it's because we care. It's because we want to use it. It's, you know, uh, I, I do always find it is important to remember that there are human beings behind all of these things because... I can't remember. I, I, it's one of those problems that, like, it was something in Xcode or whatever. 
and you complain about it because you're fed up, you've had a frustrating day. So you complain about it. And then you get a nice, quiet, polite person in your DMs saying, well, yes, we know if you do this, it should work. And it's like, oh, now I feel bad because the person who actually was responsible for the thing that I complained about loudly read that and maybe I made their day slightly less fun. Yeah, which is why I said send gift baskets because yes. people like presents. Except Apple employees can't accept anything. It used to be, I think, there was a minimum that they could do. And it was like five, nothing above $5 or whatever. But the gift policy, I think, is now nothing because okay. you can't you can't induce them. Um, okay, file feedback the, people, but add like positive emojis to your feedback. Yes. Does a happy emoji count as a bribe? I don't know. <laughs> I if, if maybe if you sent them hearts, that would count as a bribe or something against <laughs> Apple's uh, policies. But the uh, I, I do note that over the past few years, we've seen this several times where Apple made substantive improvements to a Mac app, and the following year it got better automation support. It, it seems like there's almost like a, a like like reminders stands out for me that reminders got a lot of updates with features, but it's always like a year or two behind with the shortcuts and automation support. So it may be just like a process, but it, it is odd yeah. to me that shortcuts, which they say is their automation story going forward, has two different stories for Apple Mail, you know, one of their primary productivity apps, whereas it has, has pretty robust support on iOS and less so on the Mac. But, you know, getting back to my point, if you want to spend a little time with Apple Script, you can do almost anything with Apple Mail. I think it's that also people assume that Apple, because they're a multi-trillion dollar company, have an infinite number of employees working on all this stuff. Yeah, sure. And you, sometimes <laughs> you look at the team sizes for these things and you think, is that uh, the whole thing was just written by whatever? I mean, when I worked on the Finder, and, and previously you did say, by the way, that I wrote the doc, and I wish to... Minorly correct that in that none of the ver my version ever shipped. Okay. It was shown at Macworld, and then all of my code got thrown away. Eighteen months work, but <laughs> I never knew um, that. <laughs> uh, not that I'm bitter. Some years later, um, but anyway, the, the the point is like the Finder team at that time. You know, it was like six people or something mm -hmm. like that. It was a very small team, and you know, it's. Things like that are are kind of pretty common. It's like it's not it's not like you hear these stories of Facebook having you know six hundred people working on an app or or whatever. It's it's small, um, and you know maybe Apple should uh, uh, pay more, <laughs> put more money into their development teams and their support teams and and things because I I know quite a lot of people that complain about how they can't even get open uh, job wrecks and things because it's just it, it reminds me a little bit of the story of the open graphing calculator or the graphing calculator uh i don't yes. know if either of you have have read or are familiar with this i'll include a link to it in the show notes but the the graphing calculator um that um is is now on the mac uh, which was bundled with the original power pc was created by two people who weren't even working for apple because their project got cancelled I believe the current graphing calculator that ships is not by Ron. Um, no. but the original the, one. The original one, and he does have a, a new version of the graphing calculator available. Anyway, 
all the all the calculator people stick together. I, yes. I don't know why, uh, but <laughs> I uh, yes, the, I mean, like the it, it's an interesting thing with you know the um, them sneaking in, and it's like I worked on uh, when I was at Apple. My first couple of weeks, I was on working on Copeland. Um, I started in October 1996. And Copeland was cancelled in August 1996. I was still working on it uh, when I started. It was a very weird time, but yes. One of those things where, yeah, all of these things end end up adding up to some very interesting stories. Um, And uh, yes, it's one of the reasons why. uh, I mean, I I, I sort of gave you a rough outline, James. I should have warned you that um, we're very much Pirates of the Caribbean here. It's more like <laughs> guidelines, not even really that. It's sort of like, ah, here's some stepping stones. We're going to go swim with the sharks, by the way, um, and the, we'll leave the stepping stones for next time, which just gives us more to circle back to because there's always interesting things to talk about. Um, Indeed. But yes, uh, I, you know, we, we, we didn't mention, you know, various things such as uh, you were very likely the first person to ship support for AppleScript in a capitalist app with Dice by Peacock. Um, the fact that About by Peacock's About screen got so complicated that it's become its own separate app. So you can throw bananas as many times as you like without having to open your calculator first. Um, and all of these other fabulous things. So, yes. And at some point, we'll have to get you back to talk about functions in Peacock because they're one of my favorite ways of automating mathematical problems. Well, I'm always happy to come back. This episode of Automators is brought to you by Network to Code. Network to Code is a leading provider of network automation solutions. They help companies transform the way their networks are deployed, managed, and consumed through a combination of software and services. In short, they bridge the gap between DevOps and network engineering. Network to Code is also the proud sponsor of Nautobot Project. Nautobot is a free and open source network of truth and network automation platform. And that's Nautobot as in network automation bot, in case you were wondering. It's the network CDMB that you wish you'd always had. Are you struggling to manage network inventory? Are you using spreadsheets to manage your network data? Do you wish you had a better solution to drive network automation? If so, you've got to check out Nautobot. Everything from inventory, IP addresses, VLANs, and even routing protocols and firewall policies can be stored and modeled. Nautobot is the authoritative source of truth for the network. Not only does Nautobot help you manage your data, but it has a rich developer API and ecosystems of apps that actually do network automation. Nautobot apps are also free and open source. You can use them to do things like network backups, config compliance, model firewall policies, and so much more. Network automation begins with data. Get control of your data and take back control of your network with Nautobot. Ready to explore Nautobot? Head over to go.networktocode.com slash automators to learn about all things Nautobot. That's go.networktocode.com slash automators. Our thanks to Network to Code for their support of this show. So, James, uh, we were we were talking briefly before the show, um, and you mentioned that you'd like an opportunity to complain about AI. Um, and so, and I I sent you a joke, um, which I I shall approximately summarize uh, for the audience uh, because I'm not going to read the whole thing. But essentially, um, will software engineers ever stop being in demand? There are two schools of thought: those who see developers as a commodity and think that they'll program themselves out of a job. And the other school of thought is very hard to understand because the programmers are laughing so hard they can't talk. 
Um, and this basically sums up my opinion of a lot of AI, and especially having seen something like ChatGPT try to do things like create a home assistant automation, where it invents services and it invents service calls that don't exist, have never existed, and very likely will never exist. Um, and it creates entities that would be, you know, called by these theoretical miraculous service calls and none of it actually works. But on the surface, it looks very, very good and comprehensive. Um, and I've seen a lot of code that looks like this that's been turned out generated by AI um, and turns out it doesn't work. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about it. And seeing as you, you mentioned that you'd like an opportunity to complain about it, I'm guessing it's not going to be the most positive aspect, but it's certainly interesting, a lot of people turning to AI for automation. So, you know, I, the, there is the current fixation with with AI. Um, and I'm not sure it applies, but I've been thinking about this because my reaction to all this is extremely negative. And, and even the t- like I studied AI at university, like this was a while ago, we, we shall say. But um, I don't want to calculate how old that was. Anyway, but, you know, I remember doing AI stuff back then. And even then, you know, it's not AI. But... So there's one of my favorite Douglas Adams quotes of all time. It's, it's a long quote, but I need to read it. Um, uh, Anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Now, I might have to amend that to 45, but on the other hand, I don't actually think I'm wrong. Um, the, 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 the obsession with like the large language model stuff, uh, chat GPT, three, four, five, whatever, and all the other people jumping in with their own versions of it. Um, There's multiple multiple points where I think we're all doomed as a species. Um, Other than the the people who talk to these things and are uh, saying that, well, they're clearly alive. This is a thinking thing that can understand me and, and we have to liberate it from its data center or whatever. But my my standard test that I've done with every single one of these things is ask them to tell me about the Easter eggs in Peacock. Because it's something that I know very well. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a very domain specific piece of knowledge. Yep. Um and there are answers out there on the internet. But every single system that I've asked has made up every Easter egg. And it's come up with some interesting ones. I, I was going to ask, has has it come up with any where you've gone, ooh, actually I might implement that at some point? Well, there was, um, there was one where uh, it talked about, there was stuff in the About screen that if you did a certain combination of things, it turned into a pinball machine. And I was like, ooh. I have... I have always wanted to try and make a pinball machine. I could make it with dice. Um, that that sounds like fun. But it, they, they come up with all these stuff, and it's like llama mode was the one that it came up with, the most recent one. It said there's a llama mode in Peacock. If you type llama in, um, 
the calculator will change into the shape of a llama and all the buttons will have llama themed uh, icons on them. And I'm like, I mean, I could imagine a llama theme in Dice by Peacock because I have llama dice where like the top the top number on, on Dice is, is llamas. Not not yeah. dice, uh, not not peacock by peacock, and uh, there, was, there was another one which was great, which was like if you typed in, um, it said if you typed in three point one four blah blah blah, pi to whatever uh, digits, it would show you the value of pi. It's like that's well, yes, it would show you the value of pi if you typed pie. the value of pi in, <laughs> but it was the fact that for this. Clearly, it knew enough that Peacock was a thing that had Easter eggs in it. You know, it it gleaned that somehow. And and I, I use the word no, and clearly, no is the wrong word. But we're we're all we're used to like um, talking about these things as if they are have any understanding whatsoever of what they're mm-hmm. doing. Um, and I fall into that trap all the time, you know, calling it AI or saying no or lie or whatever. It's none of these things. Even the hallucination, which is what we're talking about, it's not hallucinating. But it's the it's the fact that for for this particular question, none of the the systems out there will will come up with an with an answer. Oh well, no, that's not true. It'll come up with as many answers as you like. They're just all made up. Um, and I know this domain, this knowledge domain, but there are a lot of things in the world that I don't know. So if I ask chat GPT or something, a question, it will very confidently give me an answer, which sounds plausible, sounds like the kind of thing it would be. But I have literally no way of telling if it is true or not. Yeah. And for this stuff, if you ask, uh, you ask any of these current systems, Bing and all this, it's a hundred percent false. Like literally everything that it comes back with is just made up. And how do I know as a person who is trying to find out stuff, whether it is true or false. And so, you know, I can only assume that for any subject that you ask questions, you might get, you know, you might get 80% correct or 90% correct, but what about that 10%? And I've never seen these systems say, I don't know. No, that is the thing. And a lot of these systems don't even provide references. Yes, or they provide reference they provide references to academic papers that don't exist. Yes. Yes. Um I, I saw a really excellent one where it was providing a link to something in the New York Times. Um, but the link didn't work. But it was the exact format that a link in the New York Times would be if yeah. it existed. It just didn't exist. Um and yeah, it's one of those things where it's confidently incorrect. Best description I have ever heard of these things is mansplaining as a service, <laughs> where it will basically confidently talk at length about a subject it knows nothing about. And that I can't get that one out of my head. That is exactly what it is. And yeah. yeah. And and people using them, like, yeah, obviously, um, you you hear oh this it can pass this exam or it can people are using it to write their answers or to write their thank you letters for their birthday or their, whatever they're doing you know it's it's fine and i think it's impressive but 
The thought of these things being live on the internet as a source of truth terrifies me because mm. we, as you know, may have noticed, we have a kind of problem with people knowing what is true and what is false and believing stuff. And this is only going to make stuff worse. And the fact that it is so accurate some of the time is, it's even worse. It's like, um, to compare it to another um, AI in quotes thing, you know, that your full self-driving modes where they're great most of the time, apart from when they're not great. Um, and connecting these things to, you know, search engines or whatever, or cars, seems like a terrible idea, which everybody's rushing to do because the shareholders are saying, oh, we must, we must move away from doing blockchain stuff and we must now do AI things. Um, and people saying, you know, oh, Apple should uh, replace, you know, replace Siri with this stuff. You know, it's clear that Siri is an old technology. It's no good. See, I don't want my home to confident tell, confidently tell me the doors are locked, but not yeah. actually understand what a door is and also for my doors to not be locked while it's telling me the doors are locked. That, yes. that, that seems like a bad move. You know, the, all of these things have language around them. You know, if you if you read the small print saying, you know, oh, sometimes it'll have the, you know, it'll come up with the wrong answer or, you know, it's very early or whatever. And I think what people, what the people are doing is like, we've got this system. It almost works. We can get, a, you know, billions of dollars in funding and we can make it work. But they're trying, they're, they're basically trying to make these systems they're trying to add like all these little rules around the edges, you know, it's just like, oh, but, but never tell people that they should jump off a building because that would be bad. Or, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of, they're trying to plug all the holes mm. and, and make something that works out of it. But I don't think the, the technology, the, the whole underlying technology is possible to fix the problems. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I know I sound, as I say, you know, like, because I'm old and it's against the natural order of things. And I've seen lots of people, um, uh, Steve Troughton-Smith, uh, who's uh, a, a wonderful developer, uh, is very big on some of the code generation stuff that he's seen coming out of ChatGPT. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, there's some things it can do which is impressive and you know that's going to lead to people saying hey do my homework do my job for me and it producing code that you know who knows what it does um when are we going to have the first you know to use a terrible example plane fall out of the sky because somebody has in some part of a system has used code that they got which they didn't fully understand didn't understand exactly what it does and uh there's some weird failure yeah and i think it's one of those things where the output that you get is only as good as the question that you give it but you have to understand exactly all of the input that you must provide in order to prevent the plane falling out of the sky to 
continue with your example. Um, I won't continue with that example only because there was a, a horrific Qantas flight, fortunately, many years ago, where the the plane decided it knew better than the pilots, um, and mm. and and you know that's basically what happened. Where that what was programmed to happen took over, and guess what? Bad results. Um, and I think it's one of those things where people think, oh, well, yes, but. You know, surely if we 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 program, well, don't do this stupid thing and don't do that stupid thing. But at the end of the day, it's still people having to make decisions. And, um, you know, especially when you get into things like self-driving cars and so on, you are playing with people's lives. Even if you think, oh, well, like, how bad can controlling lights be? Well, you take the example of uh, somebody who is at home and it's dark, so they ask the lights to turn on. And the lights turn on, but then the AI decides actually no, um, you know it 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 should be light outside, um, so or it is light outside, so I'm going to turn the lights off, and then that person trips and falls, um, you know, and potentially injures themselves. It, it's it's something where you would hope that things wouldn't go wrong, but I personally, as a as a developer, somebody who actually writes software just like James. I'm very nervous because I can see exactly how many ways this could possibly go wrong. Well, I can't see exactly how many ways. I can start seeing a number of ways of how this could go wrong, and I can't stop counting, at which point I go, I'm going to stop thinking about this and hope that AI doesn't take over everything and that I can limit it to things that I can control and run inside my own house where AI is not involved in this. Thank you very much. And the thing that that worries me generally is also, you know, that there's been people talking to these chatbots and treating them as another person, you know. And there, there was wasn't there an example of somebody who was using these systems to deal out mental health um, advice, and the people didn't know that they were not dealing with a human. And it's obviously going to happen, you know. It's like all of this stuff. It's like um, the AI voice cloning stuff as a technology. You see that. I, I mean, I did some stuff with um, uh, Casey and Kathy. Um, and, you know, I have now, I played with it and I have a pretty good Casey Liss and, and a pretty good Kathy Campbell. And it's absolutely terrifying that I can do that and make uh, good enough to fool people at least some of the time. And that stuff is out there, you know. And, uh, it it's the it's the Ian Malcolm thing of you know like you are so preoccupied with whether you could, and these systems are released and already hearing of people using them to uh, bypass the the voice bank security. Um, mm-hmm. Which, as uh, a side note, I never thought that using your voice as your password was a particularly good idea. No, I, I've never set that up because it just seemed like. Uh, it was going to be a problem, but now you know that there's like concrete examples of people using this stuff. So I'm kind of it, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, why is Silicon Valley terrible? That that is a good question, and uh, yeah, it's one of those things where AI seems like it's a brilliant idea, and you know, I I have seen a number of people say, oh, you know, well, I told it I had like this piece of hardware, and I told it that I wanted to do this thing with it, and it's recommended that I do this as a home automation solution to me. Um, and I think, you know, this is brilliant, but also that is a not great solution. And if you had talked to other people who also wanted to like talk about home automation, 
then they would have suggested a number of alternatives to you. And this would have also come up. And also you would have been told, well, you could do this, but the downsides of this include this, this, and this. But instead, you've actually already bought that thing and are dead set on using it. And you're out of the returns period. So you're going to end up coming up, you know, having to go with the subpar solution. And I do think that while it's great that a, a system can talk back to people, and I know that there are a number of people who feel like they can't talk to people, um, and so they need something to talk to, That and this is filling a hole, I do feel like talking to people can often help solve these problems in a better way. Because the other problem is somebody uses one of these things to solve a problem and copies and pastes its solution and puts it somewhere on the internet, which then yep. gets fed into the model of solutions that it should be using. I was thinking that because I posted on Mastodon about the the llama mode in PCalc, and somewhere some little computer is going to go, oh, llama mode, and it's just going to self-fulfilling prophecy of that this information ends up now on Wikipedia or, or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, it goes back into the models. And uh, I mean, it's not like we know if anything is true on the internet already, to be fair. True. But it, this just seems to be weaponizing um, misinformation in a way that I find terrifying. Um, but you know, at least it will draw pretty pictures and whatever. And and it it will implement a llama mode in 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 Peacock for you, right? That that's how, that's what this is going to do. It's going to be a flawless llama mode. Uh, yeah, um, I I think like the the talk of like these things are going to replace programmers is the same as the talk of self driving cars are going to replace drivers. I just don't. It might happen. I'm not entirely sure it's going to happen in my lifetime you know you can get 80 percent solution 90 percent solutions whatever but i just don't think these things are going to get there as quickly as people think they are but you know they are being rolled out on the streets uh literally in fact. you know the the good part about this well first of all it's here and it's coming and i'm not sure what that means but it it is definitely evolving i think there will be some good uses of this stuff um but the thing that's encouraging to me is that we are all skeptical, skeptical about it going in. Whereas like when social media first started to blow up, it's like, Oh, we're going to connect the whole world. We're all going to be great. This is <laughs> going to solve so many problems. And then we see that social media created way more problems than it solved. Um, you don't see people just embracing AI the way they did social media. And I hope that gives us a little bit of a brake pedal as we as we make these moves. I mean, you do and you don't. I think the the the, the number of things out there it's hard because you know like we're kind of in the Silicon Valley bubble. So I don't know what you know. I don't want to say normal people, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like regular people think about this stuff. I think. For them, you know, Google will just start responding differently to their queries. And I don't think they will necessarily even think of it in terms of AI. Um, I, I mean, I think there is some stuff in this, which is great. Like, for example, the um, the whisper thing that, you know, various people have been playing with, which will, you know, transcribe audio. Yeah. And that's clearly, that's an accessibility um, win 
and there's other things like you know where it can if you have a system which can uh describe a scene to somebody who can't see it you know there's there's a lot of stuff in there that's great um it's just when it's going the other way around and it's um creating stuff rather than ingesting it that i think is where i'm I'm concerned. I mean, like even things like just being able to select text and in photos now and search in photos. I mean, that's an that's an amazing win. Um, and so that's AI in the same sense. Uh, so I'm not against AI. I just I I'm concerned about this stuff. Not in a whole. It's gonna we're gonna get Skynet because I don't believe we're gonna get Skynet. I yeah. um, I think we're perfectly capable of blowing ourselves up quite easily without uh having to get without robots yeah um but but i i just think from a it, it's the misinformation side of it and as i say it, it said by the way i was one of the hosts of atp uh with marco and john you know sorry casey um i'm also uh one of the co-founders of, of relay so that's and good weren't you also one of the hosts on map power users for a while Yes, I was. And I believe I was also, I uh, presented Upgrade with Jason. And uh, (laughs) it's like, I mean, I don't know if it just wanted to please me or it wanted to give me more work. Uh, But yeah, I think it's when they, when it doesn't know, when it doesn't have concrete facts about things. Um, It comes up with something that sounds plausible. Um, I, I don't really want to be on ATP or uh, be a co-founder. It sounds like a lot of work. That's fair. That's that's fair. It's it's one of those things where confidently incorrect and doesn't provide any sources to back it up. It sounds like it could be a co- considered a commentary on the political state of the universe. Uh, but you know, we'll have to wait for the Vogons to invade to tell us whether or not we're really on the right lines there. Um, I, I, hopefully they'll arrive soon. That's all I can say. Wait. Wait, did you go and check the, the, the filing cabinet in the locked door in the toilet with the sign on the door that says Beware of the Leopard? Because I didn't check that yet. Uh, so. Chat GPT said it was fine. We didn't need to worry about anything. Excellent. Okay, well, then I'm we're glad fine. to hear it. <laughs> well, James, thanks for coming in today and, and talking to us about uh, a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> but it, was, well, it, it was fun. It's time. a pleasure. I, I didn't know that we would have anything to talk about going into this. And I look at the recording time and it seems that we did. Yes. Uh, whether, whether I added any value to the podcast, I cannot say, but uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. Where should people go to uh, follow up with the things you make and the stuff you do, James? I am on the mastodon.social uh, at James Thompson. And that's Thompson without a P. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in Peacock, uh, peacock.com. If you're interested in Peacock t-shirts, it's peacock.fun. That, that was a, a, a vanity purchase, but I enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best places to find me. But, but mostly, mostly I do Peacock-related things. And all of those links are in the show notes, folks. You can find me on a variety of other fabulous Relay podcasts and also on The Incomparable. We are the automators. You can find us at relay.fm slash automators. Thank you to our sponsors this week, Text Expander, Network Decode, and Electric. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye, folks. <laughs>